This is the uh, Uposatha night, and uh, the, the solar eclipse, and it seems like a very powerful time where changes take place since the temple opening ceremony on July the 4th onward probably to the end of the year, New Year, and so forth, suddenly uh, the incessant changes that the Buddha was always pointing to about the nature of conditioned phenomena is change, impermanence. So this is a, a constant reflection for us uh, in order to really know this in a not as, as just a, as a concept but actually be so completely aware of change as the way it is and the, the changingness of things is just natural it's not something uh, just conceptual I think uh, in uh, Thailand, for example, where they, the word nature, the, 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 they use the word Dhamma. So it's interesting when you're, when you're learning to speak Thai, then, then the very kind of refuge that we take, Dhammang Sarnangachami, is their way, their, what the, the word for nature, and that we would translate Dhamma uh, as nature. And I remember um, how I was brought up in the way my cultural background was that nature was, uh, I never connected with it really as a, as a refuge, but as something external to me, like nature were trees and mountains, uh, sun and moon, solar eclipses, uh, natural things were the four seasons and on and on like that animal world, the world of nature. And, and, in, and through that way of thinking, then somehow I never really connected myself to nature. Somehow the self, the sense of myself remained not included, wasn't included in that concept of nature. Because the Western civilization tends to see things in this 
there in a, in a way that sees nature as a as something separate from us. At least that's how I perceived it. That's how I interpreted what I heard from my parents and my cultural background. And then uh, in Buddhism and then in Thailand, where you're living in a, in a culture that is based on um, Buddhis Buddhism, it's interesting to see that the Dhamma, is trying to translate Dhamma into an, a suitable English word was always a problem. So we, if you can see in our own chanting, we always, we take the word Dhamma and use it in an English context because we don't have a word, say, that includes everything and nothing. Because Dhamma, the word Dhamma itself is, is, a, is, a, is a definitely a word which is a convention, but it also conveys that sense of everything and nothing. And so, like, when we, tr when we try to just translate Dhamma as the truth, the truth in English tends to be too kind of abstract, isn't it? It doesn't, it doesn't include everything, because the truth would, would include that which isn't, would, could not include that which isn't true. So, where Dhamma can include everything, Conditioned, non unconditioned, true, untrue, right and wrong, good and bad, high and low, male and female. Dhamma includes everything from Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism, Taoism, Satanism, um, paganism, philosophy, psychology, you name it. There's nothing that you can't in terms of being Dhamma. So, this, this points very directly to a kind of the limitations of our own culture which, which tends to polarize uh, uh, our minds into heaven and hell, right and wrong, good and bad. And then Dhamma would include it, it can be, we can see Dhamma in terms of right and wrong, good and bad. We see all conditioned phenomena as impermanent or changing. So, in contemplating change, impermanence, we're not, we're not trying to um, convince ourselves that everything's changing as some kind of uh, idea that we have to uh, believe in as Buddhists, but looking at change. So this reflective state of mind, isn't it? This mindfulness, mindfulness or intuitive awareness, attentiveness, these kind of words uh, point to that ability we have to say, pay attention, to be in the state of attentive, intelligent awareness, where then we, then in that state of mind, in that, when we're, when we trust in that ability to pay attention to the present moment, then whatever is arising and ceasing, we're aware of. Whether it's right or wrong, it's not the issue. Whether it's good or bad, 
heaven or hell. And no longer uh, trying to sort out what's wrong or what's right, nor trying to get rid of the devils and, and hold on to the angels. But it's being able to observe the changingness of whatever is, whether it's angels or devils, heaven or hell, right or wrong, good or bad. So that is, uh, then we can see why every, all conditions are dhammas. So uh, hell is dhamma, and so is evil, and so is good, and so is God. And Jesus Christ, and Mohammed, and the whole lot. There's <laughs> nothing. There's no, no perception, no concept, no convention that can't be reflected on in terms of Dhamma. The truth of the way it is that all conditions are impermanent. So, so that, is, uh, that, that allows us to relate to the conditioned world not through picking and choosing uh, and uh, preferring this over that or trying to control it, endlessly trying to sort it out, control it, and, and uh, resist it, or fight it, or create it, or whatever, but in understanding it. So that, that whatever conditions we're experiencing, we have a way of looking at them for what they really are. Because we don't always have that much control or say over the conditions that we're going to be experiencing. I mean, many of us have to experience conditions that we don't like at all. And yet that can also be Dhamma because we, uh, when we're in this reflective state, intuitive awareness, then even what we don't like and don't want and shouldn't be and is not right and unfair and unjust and stupid and nonsensical and terrible, frightening, whatever, is we're now more interested in its changingness than in its quality. So then we say, Sape Sankarani Cha, this is the chant, the, the, the reflection, all conditions are impermanent. Sape Tama Anatana, and we say, all Dhamma is anatta or not self, you can't find a separate personal condition in any, in any of the conditions, in the body, in the uh, conditioning of the mind. And in the unconditioned, you, you, there's no need to claim the unconditioned as oneself. So the, the uh, Sankara, Sankata Dhamma, Asankata Dhamma. There's the condition and then there's the unconditioned. Now the, the, uh, the quote, that my favorite quote from the scriptures is the uh, which is uh, 
because uh, there are there uh, there is an escape from the uh, born the created the the condition the originator and if there was no escape there is there is the unborn uncreated unconditioned and if there was not the unborn, uncreated, unconditioned, then there'd be no escape from the born, the created, the conditioned. But because there is the unborn, uncreated, unoriginated, unconditioned, then there is the escape from the born, the created, the originated, the unconditioned. And that's, a, that's very profound. Uh, and I think I, I consider that the, probably the ultimate. Um, perfect metaphysical uh, statement I'm willing to to I think try to assume there's a better one than that but so far that that is the most meaningful to me so so there is the, the conditions that we have to experience which are our emotions uh, uh, our habits and uh, whether they're good or bad habits, uh, memories. Uh, we have to experience just the, 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 the sensory world that impinges on us, what we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch. And then we have memory. We have a retentive memory. We have to remember things. A lot of things we don't want to remember. And a lot of things I would love to be able to forget and not have to ever remember. Other things I'd like to keep. I'm getting old, so so uh, I'm getting my memory isn't so good. And I can get really worried about that if I if I allowed myself <laughs> Alzheimer's. Oh, <laughs> that's the word that, that sends shudders up the spine of somebody 65. Or fifty, I think. <laughs> but the, but the uh, memory and uh, it's the the physical world, the, the solar eclipse, the changing of the season, day and night, uh, smell and and uh, taste. All this when we like in vipassana practice, isn't it? The, we continually con observe the changingness of these uh, conditions as we experience them. So when we're eating or smelling something or or uh, feeling something or, or whether it's uh, on a, a level of a sense sense experience or it's a, a mental state, then the then the reminder of that whatever arises ceases. Now that is now just consider that anything you're experiencing now is has already arisen. So we don't always have the choice about what's going to arise in our consciousness at any given moment, because things happen in such a way that sometimes we get shocked, or we get surprised, or we get you know uh, the contingencies uh, are unknown, and and even though we try to control uh, and kind of 
try to have some control over experience, we always, we, we, you know, in our hearts know that we don't have that much control, that there can always be the unexpected, the unwanted. Some, uh, this is possible, so we can feel quite anxious or frightened about, you know, when we think about all the possibilities for experiencing uh, painful or humiliating or, or frightening uh, ex uh, experiences in the future. So, but in the present moment, whatever your, you know, the body's here, the, the breath is here, the um, sensations, whatever sensations you're feeling, pleasure, pain, neutral feeling, these are impermanent and changing now as we explore them in the present through, through mindfulness. Or whenever emotion happens to have arisen in your mind right now, or, the, or memory, it has, it, you recognize it has arisen, because it's, if it's present now, if you're feeling it now, or thinking like this now, or, then that's what has arisen. But what is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. So a relationship to what arises then isn't one of liking or disliking or approving or disapproving because then that's something we create again regarding we're always resisting, fighting, controlling uh, what arises in our, in our consciousness. So in terms of mindfulness and wisdom what our relationship to what arises is understanding it. Understanding doesn't mean seeing it as some kind of giving it a kind of personal connotation, but by reminding ourselves that it's like this. Pleasure is like this, pain is like this, happiness is like this, misery is like this. And so you're, you're understanding that you're not trying to justify it, deny it, blame it on anybody or anything, but understanding it, really accepting it, letting it be what it is in the present. Rather than trying to make it into what you want, you're willing to let even a miserable condition be miserable in the present. The relationship to it is, is patient acceptance, loving-kindness, metta, And then, if you, if, you, if you can do that, if you can relate to it in this way through mindfulness and wisdom, then you will begin to, to really know the changingness of that particular condition. You're seeing it. You're, you're, not, you're not making any critical comments or, or uh, making a problem about it anymore because you can actually see that it is an energy vibration changing. It has no essence, it has no core, no substance, no, no uh, uh, reality to it other than its changingness. No permanent reality other than its changingness. So then this is, this is when I can vipassana, the, the insight practices. This is what you're doing, you're looking insightfully 
into the way things are. Because all conditions are that way. It's their nature. And then when you, when you, when you are fully, uh, when you're more willing to let things change accordingly, then you'll also realize there's cessation because what arises ceases. And so it is not self, it's anatta. Because you, you see there is nothing in it that is really mine, that, that is, that I can say is a kind of permanent tomato in anything I think or feel or body or anything else when I really understand it in terms of Dhamma. So contemplating this, the cessation, realizing the cessation of conditioned phenomena is then having the realization of the unconditioned. Because what's left when something ceases? When you're fully awake and aware in a condition that arises, then it ceases and you're aware of its cessation, what's left? Well then, in from say, this is you have to to uh, know for yourself. There's no budget tongue way teed up we knew he. But in terms of trying to explain it from my own uh, experience of this, that there's there's uh, awareness. There's consciousness still operating. Um, there's uh, the breath. There's the cosmic sound in the universe. But the, the thing that is at that moment is that there, there's not a sense of arising. There's a kind of gap, a space, an emptiness. But not an emptiness like a, like a, like a dead... Uh, annihilation emptiness. It's an emptiness where all potential, all possibilities are capable of arising. So we're, we're, we're not kind of seeking annihilation through just kind of getting all conditions to cease as a, as a, and until there's nothing left permanently cease so that, it com that all, that is all annihilated and there's absolutely nothing ever arising ever again. But there is this sense of resting in this and, and, and being at ease in this position that we are now experiencing as conscious entities in, and, and, and in being interested in this relationship with the conditioned and the unconditioned. So we have words like emptiness shunyata, or anatta, uh, or viraga, desirelessness, nirodo, nibbana, these words convey that non-attachment, cessation, uh, like nibbana, the word nibbana. Remember, it, when I first started reading about Buddhism, they described nibbana as extinction. And so the, uh, the, the kind of logic that came from that was that Buddhists were just trying to kind of uh, annihilate themselves. The greatest happiness was to be extinct. 
was how I interpreted it. Because uh, that, 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 that's how my, I, I didn't have any perspective on extinction because the, my mind was dualistic. It was either, either it's becoming something creative or it's extinct. And extinct to me meant nothing left, you know, annihilated, destroyed forever. Because that's the way the thinking mind works. You, the thinking mind kind of goes from, you know, creation, destruction, and so forth as, as, as opposites, opposed to each other. But intuitive awareness includes creation and destruction. So we can, as we trust ourselves to rest in this more intuitive ability of the mind, then then we begin to have perspective on the arising and ceasing, or the creation and destruction. Because the, these words apply, are, these words are, are all about conditioned phenomena, and creation, destruction, arising, ceasing, birth and death, beginning and ending. They're, they're just different ways of talking about conditioned phenomena. So whether it's a microcosmic, or macrocosmic condition is not the issue, isn't it? It's not whether it's uh, a universal, grand uh, condition or, or just a, a thought that passes through the mind or, or a, a feeling, the, a personal feeling that happens to, you happen to be having at this moment. But not, it's not, not a matter of that one is, is really more important than the other. It's a matter of recognizing that the impermanence beginning to just intuitively recognize, realize the impermanence of conditioned phenomena. No matter how personal the emotions might be, it's not trying to depersonalize and not have any emotions. That's not what uh, Nibbana is, where you just don't feel anything. You kind of, nothing can touch you anymore and you're, whatever happens, you just absolutely are indifferent towards and don't care about. But it's real, the Nibbana means realizing non-attachment. Upadana. To, rea to realize, to know what, to have the insight into non-attachment. What is that like? What is it? You, can you recognize non-attachment? Well, like attachment, most of us, uh, you know, we come from uh, our conditioning is out of avicca, ignorance of Dhamma, so it, it, the uh, civilization tends to encourage attachment. Attachment to views, attachment to feelings, attachment to the body, attachment to material world, attachment to all the perceptions. So, attachment is is born out, uh, you know, this isn't attachment, that's just practical attachment, uh, kind of functional attachment. This is habitual attachment that is never questioned, such as your identity, who you are, what I am, and all this is not, we just take for granted, I am this person, I was born in this place, I am like this, I am this body. 
and then and so the we we attach to those views without question and we just operate from those assumptions those positions and and uh, and then of course what is the result of that self-consciousness isn't it we be we're obsessed with ourselves what we look like what other people think uh, our our social backgrounds, our educational qualifications, our race, our class, our uh, age, our gender, our political views. Oh no, like, we get so attached and we suffer endlessly over this. That we, we, wars are around about all these kind of issues, aren't they? About class struggle, about ethnic hatreds, about racial prejudices, about uh, political obsessions and views. So this attachment uh, is, is uh, say mindfulness is to, like in the first and second noble truths, to to really see that what attachment is. To see, to really know Ubadana. We're not trying to just become non-attached people. That doesn't make sense anymore. I'm trying to become somebody who isn't attached to anything. Can, can be, you know, a, a deluded mental state. Where I, I'm really trying to make myself maybe indifferent. Maybe I'm a very frightened person and, I, and I'm just trying to pretend I'm not attached to anything just as a cover-up for my fear and insecurity. So I, I can pretend that nothing bothers me. I'm, a, I'm not attached to anything. But that's not Nibbana. So attachment needs to be understood, isn't it? Like we... This, this word understanding is, is, uh, isn't just a, a kind of intellectual understanding of something, just a kind of defining something according to, to uh, the way we think about things or the way we define words, but in, in really standing under, really knowing, experiencing attachment, self, suffering, so the first noble truth is that dukkha is suffering, but self, when you really uh, see what, how much suffering there is in, in all the, the uh, clinging to self-views. Like from my own experience, just observing what, how so much suffering there is in, in just being self-conscious. Like sitting up here on a high seat in the you don't know how, how much I used to suffer from having to sit giving talks because of self-consciousness, everybody looking at me. And then I, I thought, I wonder what they're thinking. Somebody get up and walk out, I think they don't like what I'm saying. Somebody start yawning, I think they're bored. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then, uh, and at the end, uh, just, just uh, you know, if I felt I said something I shouldn't, or I said something politically inappropriate, or 
maybe said something that wasn't quite right. Then I could go, you know, get off, get off the high scene and feel, oh God, I don't know, I just can't do it. And I don't, I don't want to give another talk. Or, and I feel really, you know, I could spend a long time just, you know, feeling horrible, guilt-ridden and, and, uh, and critic, self-critical about, because of, I might have made a mistake, I might have said something wrong, I might have upset somebody. So then this, knowing this suffering, what is this? This is suffering, isn't it? So going to that suffering, just observing that suffering, that sense of I am, me, I am, um, what, what do people think of me? Do people like me or don't like me, or this kind of thing. Then, just by beginning, by recognizing this feeling that I'm creating about me, I can see that that how how much suffering there is in being somebody. Because it, 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 even when even when I was getting praise and adulation, my fan club would come up and say, "Oh, just me, you." Yeah, and whatever you say is just so wonderful. <laughs> and uh, you know, praising me, I think. But even then, that kind of thing doesn't, you know, that that makes you feel, temp that kind of temporarily makes you feel good. But when you really examine that, it doesn't last very long. And you're right back into the self-critical, doubting uh, kind of mental state. So then the, the, this, uh, the, just by contemplating the, the feeling of being somebody, of being a person, being a, an Ajahn, being Ajahn Sumedho, being a uh, habit, being a teacher, being a, a, a junior monk, or being a nun, all these identities taken personally can be are, they're all forms of suffering uh, when we attach to them, when we're clinging to them. So that's why in the, the Buddha's pointing to mindfulness is the, the, the door, isn't it? The, the, way, the way out of this trap. Because there's no way out of the trap just going from one condition to another. It's just, you, you, you might be able to make yourself feel better at times to having a more positive view about yourself, so you you kind of you can feel maybe happier and better about yourself, but in the long run it doesn't really work all that well. It doesn't last because it's based still on the avicca. Because the the realization the Buddha was pointing to was the realization of the unconditioned, not which is non attachment. Nibbana, cessation, anatta, no self, sunyata, emptiness. Pointing to this, in the, like in meditation, this being able to 
like in the morning guided meditations that I've been leading, just uh, encouraging this and a receptive, open receptiveness where the mind is willing to allow uh, whatever arises to arise. Not particularly trying to make anything arise, but something will arise when the conditions are there. So like, like grounding or kind of grounding yourself with the basic learning to be with the body, to be, let the body be here and now, really opening and being receptive to the uh, existence of this physical condition, not through identity, but through awareness of it, as it is at this moment, through sitting, or whatever posture we're in, it's like this, with breathing, breathing is like this, with the sound of silence. Then we can also, then when we, when we ground ourselves, when we touch the earth and, and, and have this kind of uh, embracing quality, uh, of being here and now with this body as a, as a kind of um, basis, something that, that is so, um, kind of solid and not so flighty and, and uh, ephemeral as a emotions or thoughts. So the body is a, is a very important uh, condition to learn how to use properly, learn how to respect it, in how to learn from it, then they, then we have, then we can have perspective on say, the emotional conditions that arise, and what arises ceases, and in their ceasing is peace. Anicca vada sankara ubhattvaya tamino ubhattvani ruchanti de sangubhasamo sukhon. What we chant at funerals. All conditions are impermanent, they arise and they, what arises passes away and their passing is peace, happiness, sukho. So when, when we realize this non-attachment cessation, it's, it's, it's happy, it's a peaceful bliss. What's left then? One can describe as bliss. And to get to, to know that, to realize that more and more as the natural state of the mind, the natural state, its natural way is bliss. It's not a, bliss isn't a kind of high state that you get through winding yourself up into some very great high feeling. Not, not a high, even though it's oftentimes used. <laughs> or like getting high on something. But in terms of Nibbana, realizing the, the Dhamma, then it's not high, but, it, it's, but it's not low. It's not mediocre, the sense of, of just a kind of blah, nothing, or a, or a boring compromise. But you're beginning to realize what purity, what you realize, get to know the true nature 
of being is the purity. Intelligent is intelligent. It's not, not like a stupid trance or just a dull state of indifference. So this is why it has to be realized each one for themselves. They say, Santitiko, Akariko, Ehipatiko, Upanayiko, Bajatang, Vetidapo, Inuin. To be experienced here now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading onwards to be, exper- to be known individually by the wise. So, this word Dhamma then is, uh, you know, there's a, it's about nature. We talk about nature, then the nature then, we've, we're beginning to recognize nature as, as not as some, something external out there that we're going to preserve nature or become natural or, or have, have our obsessions around what, is, what, is na- what nature is. But we're, we're, we're recognizing, we're realizing what is true, what is natural, what is real. Through this intuitive mind rather than through ideas about it. Avicca, the ignorance of the Dhamma, then is a kind of, you know, we realize most of, most human beings are suffering from this avicca. So it's, you know, it's, uh, it, it, uh, not having many people, many beings never have a chance to hear the Dhamma. Not, the, when you think of, of our opportunities to hear Dhamma, they really feel, feel quite privileged actually. <laughs> because uh, when I think of, you know, the, uh, how many, five, six, uh, nearly six billion people now on this planet, and I uh, wonder how many have even an opportunity, a chance. You can see like countries like China, Red China, they're trying to control everything so that nothing like this is ever really allowed. You know, it's always, you have to kind of do it in secret. It's uh, something you've got to, that is not encouraged. Here in Britain, we're very lucky because it's very, it has the government and the social system that has no axe to grind in regards to uh, religion. And so we do have as a wonderful opportunity to, to hear the Dhamma, then to practice it, put it into, make it, bring it so that it's, it's living for us, it's, it's in us, it's not just some, something we do as a kind of meditation practice, but it's how we begin to really take refuge in it, to, to relate to experience wisely. And to take responsibility for 
how we live. Very important. And like the sila, when they took the eight precepts tonight, and the uh, Patimok training, and the Viladhara training, and only the five precepts. These are all kind of basis of action and speech. So that, that we do good, our active side, living in this society, on this planet, in this community, is the intention, do good. To, to act, to make our active side, how we relate a actively to ourselves, to each other, to the society, to the planet, is to do good, to act on the good, that which is good, kind and generous. And, and then to refrain from acting or speaking on those impulses we have that are cruel, unkind, stingy, harmful to ourselves and others. But both are Dhamma, aren't they? We've seen the Dhamma of even our bad thoughts or uh, horrible emotions or whatever. We're, it's still Dhamma, but it's what we don't act on. So this is, this is where we, at this point, we have a choice. We can, that's why, like asking for precepts is something you're asking for, not something, you know, when you try to force precepts on people, it doesn't work. You just kind of maybe intimidate people into being moral out of making them frightened of being immoral. But they're not awakened to Dhamma through that. They're just good because they're afraid of bad. But in this way, we're actually seeing the, the value of goodness, what goodness really is, and, and how to, to use goodness as a way of relating and acting, speaking. And then we can see the result of acting or speaking on bad impulses, what the result of that. And then we, we learn that that's just, we create more suffering for ourselves and others through acting or speaking on bad impulses. So, so then this is something you're knowing yourself. It's not trying to be good because you're afraid, but because you love the good. And that's what you want, to, that's how you want to manifest in this, on the, in this community and in this society is to manifest that which is good. But to learn the Dhamma from both, because we all have to bear with both conditions, heaven and hell, good and evil, right and wrong, good and bad. They're all, it's all, all can be seen in, as Dhamma. The condition and the unconditioned. So, this uh, during this uh, Vasa time, just to offer this as a, to kind of encourage you uh, in this uh, opportunity that's here and now, Amaravati, uh, that. Uh, don't uh, don't take it lightly and just see it as a, as something to uh, and just misuse or just not value because it is it is it is uh, it is a wonderful 
full opportunity uh, and, uh, and, and it's quite rare to have such, a, such a, an available uh, place as this that is supported and is, is established and its, and its whole intention, its whole purpose the only purpose really of, of the, having a place like this is to make this teaching available to, to give uh, Dhamma teaching, make it so that it is uh, uh, available to whoever is interested and to give opportunities for teaching, for practice, for commitment. Mm -hmm. So I offer this as a reflection. Thank you.